You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Welcome, everyone, and um, yeah, just great for you, uh, for me to welcome you to our online service. My name is Richard, if you don't know who I am, and uh, just thankful that we could be across time and space, um, and as we were praying before the start of the service, we were praying that God would minister to you wherever you may be catching this uh, live stream, maybe in a living room with some friends, maybe you're by yourself. Um, we're just thankful that we can uh, still be connected in this way, and so we're going to jump straight into our final Part, part five of the series we've been doing this fall called Salt and Light. We've been alluding to the powerful, inspirational, and challenging teaching, really, of Jesus. Um, and throughout the series, and actually today, we're going to look at that specific text where he talks about being salt and light. And in, 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 in essence, what we've been really looking at is what does it mean for us to be followers of Jesus or disciples of Jesus? And what does that then mean for uh, how we make an impact in the world today? And so we've been looking at that through um, understanding the big story that Scripture is telling us and, and how that really is ultimate reality. And does our reality line up with what the story and the arc of Scripture, the grand story that Scripture is telling us? We looked at how the good news and understanding the fullness of the good news, how that, that intersects God's story with our story we looked at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to be a church that makes disciples of Jesus. And then last week, Sheila talked about what it means to love God and, and really love neighbor in very practical, tangible ways. And so today, we come to the challenge that Jesus gives you and I. As I said, I've been alluding to it, but now we're going to look at the very words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. And it says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So these are the words of Jesus. Let's let's pray before we jump in today. And so, Father, we're just thankful that throughout this series, you've been giving us a vision and a challenge of what it means to be followers of Jesus, uh, even some 2,000 plus years on from where he commissioned his first disciples. And so I pray today, God, wherever people may be watching this, that your spirit works in our hearts, Lord, to do what you want to do specifically in and through our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, we, we ask you to be the ultimate teacher and to guide us into all truth today and put our hands to action in the way that you want us to be an influence in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. And so if you're unfamiliar with these particular words, 
they really come um, in a context of Jesus, a Sermon on the Mount, a famous sermon that Jesus gave, um, and it follows this particular passage that we just looked at. It follows what's called the Beatitudes, where Jesus really is talking about the upside-down, inside-out way of his kingdom uh, and instilling the kingdom values that kind of sometimes seem to be very countercultural or very non-intuitive, really. Uh, blessed are you who are poor, happy are you who mourn. Those are not kind of things that we would think oh, make, make sense, but, but Jesus is really instilling a different way to be within the world. And so the challenge I believe that he's giving his disciples and us through that challenge is that followers of Jesus, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus who do not integrate and practice their faith as a way of life or like tasteless salt or hidden light, not very effective, kind of useless in some ways. And so it's the integration of that that's really important. Not that we just show up and that was an amazing sermon, Jesus. I'm sure there were some people who thought, man, I've never heard a teacher like that before, but kind of went on and lived their lives like nothing had changed. And that's not what we're talking about. We're trying to hear the words of Jesus and then figure out how on earth do I live this out? Literally, how on earth do I live this live this out in, in a city like Toronto or wherever you might find yourself in the 21st century? And so he uses beautifully just everyday uh, things, substances, everyday things, salt and light. We're very familiar with that even in our context today. And I think there's two um, attributes of salt and light that's really important for us to remember, particularly as we go throughout this message. The first one is that those two attributes, salt and light, are really things that are function best when they're for the benefit of something else. In and of themselves, they're kind of like salt is just kind of in a salt jar. Light is just kind of light, but they function and work best for the benefit of something else. And the second thing is they're highly contrasting to those other things. So for instance, salt preserves and flavors. We know in the time of Jesus that salt was primarily a preservative. They didn't have fridges, they didn't have freezers in that time. And so if they wanted to prevent particularly meat or uh, produce, like, proteins like that from going uh, decaying, they would salt them to preserve them. And then obviously we know the flavoring attribute that salt brings. And so it contrasts heavily to decay. What about light? Well, we know that light illuminates and reveals and allows us to see things more clearly. And so it's contrasting to darkness. And so those are two key things to keep in the back of our minds that they work best when they function for the benefit of something else. And secondly, they're highly contrasted to the things that they're trying to prevent. And so using these everyday elements, we see that Jesus helps us understand how he wants us to be as his followers uh, to live within the world. And so today what I want to do is pick up that, and I believe that Jesus um, offers us a, a paradigm or a framework or a pattern, if you will, of how to think about the world that we're in, a posture as we move towards the world, and then very practically, we're going to end off with some practices of what it means to be salt and light uh, in our world today, as we've been doing throughout this series. So firstly, let's touch very quickly on just the paradigm that Jesus offers. And I believe the paradigm that he would have us and a pattern that he would have us follow, us follow is that we're to be distinct from the world for the world's sake. You know, sometimes people just put a period after distinct from the world, just be remove yourself from it. That's not what he's saying. He's being distinct from the world for the world. Jesus calls his followers to be distinct from the world for the sake of the world. And that word distinct just means uh, recognizably different, right? They're different. Those kingdom values are very different sometimes to the values that we find around us in our culture. 
And how do we know that he's wanting us to be this distinction? Because he says salt losing its saltiness. It's useless. It, you know, so in some ways, and so the, the chemists out there, the, the people who paid attention at science, you'll know that salt, uh, sodium chloride, is a very stable uh, substance. Technically, it's almost impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. So what would make salt lose its saltiness? Well, salt can lose its saltiness if it begins to get mixed in with other impurities. That's the way that salt loses its effectiveness, loses its saltiness. And so what Jesus is saying is, first, his disciples, you need to remain salty. You need to be very careful of compromise, of conformity, of becoming like the world that you're trying to influence, the corrupting world around you. Those impurities are going to render you salt, salt, uh, flavorless, tasteless, and that's no good to you or to the world. The second thing he also highlights is you don't have a light and put it under a bowl. What's use of that? A light is meant to be put out to dispel darkness. And so almost in the other sense, he's saying beware of withdrawing from the darkness of the world. And it's almost two tensions we need to hold together is, hey, be careful to not be like the world. Be careful to not be right the culture around you. There's impurities, conformity, compromise. You've got to be careful of that. So some people can think, okay, great. Well, I need to withdraw from that. I need to remove myself from bad character, corrupts, you know, bad company, corrupts good character. Those verses come to mind. But then in the other one, he's saying, but at the same time, you don't withdraw yourself from the world. What good is it for light to withdraw? No, light needs to be in darkness. And so it's both and. It's distinct to be from the world for the world's sake. Uh, author David Kinnaman says it like this, being salt and light demands two things. We practice purity in the midst of a fallen world, and yet we live in proximity to this fallen world. If you don't hold up both truths in tension, you invariably become useless and, and separated from the world God loves. And obviously in the life of Jesus, we see him manage this beautifully. And one, the most holy person that's ever walked the planet, and yet he had the label uh, of eating and drinking with sinners, of being a friend of sinners. And so that's the paradigm that he wants us to have. Now, it's not being different or distinct for just being different sake, for the sake of being different, but it's being different on behalf of, again, functioning best on behalf of, for the sake of others. Um, like this, precisely because the church does not exist for itself but completely and exclusively for the world, it is necessary that the church not become the world. You know, sometimes we can think that we need to be different just for being different sake, but it's a, it's a means to an end, if you will. It's being different in order to benefit the very world that we're trying to be salt and light in. Another way of maybe saying this is that the Christian distinction we're talking about is not to be reactive to what's out there, but it's rather being proactive not being reactive to what's outside, but being proactive to what's inside, what's at the center. Jesus Christ is at the center. The center defines the difference, not fear of the culture, not fear of others primarily. It's the center, Jesus. He's the one that makes us distinct as we look at him, as we begin to try and follow him, as we look at those beatitudes and all the other things that scripture tells us to do, we begin very clearly to see that, gosh, if I'm really going to take him seriously, my life is really going to start to look very differently to perhaps the people and the choices and the decisions and the culture around me. And it's not being different because of the being different. For the, it's because you're following Jesus is going to make you different. 
And so that's the essence here. That's the motivation here. And sometimes we can be so mindful of what's out there, and it's like, no, no, no. The center defines the difference. The center, when we begin to follow Jesus, he defines the difference in our lives. And a natural byproduct of that is our lives should become to become reflective of that difference to the culture around us. Okay, so that's the paradigm. Distinct. Think about that. The paradigm. What is Jesus? What's the framework? What's the pattern that Jesus wants his followers to have in the world? Is to be distinct. Distinct from the world in order to be um, salt and light to the very world that he loves. And so with that as a framework, what then should our posture be towards the world that Jesus obviously loves so much? Now, there's different ways throughout uh, Christian history that people's posture told has been very different. Some very unhelpful ways. I think a couple would be, or a few would be, withdrawal. Okay, we talked about that. Some people hear the words of Jesus, hear that we need to be holy, or Dave Kimmon said, talk about being pure. And they instinctively say, well, in order to do that, I need to cut off from all the bad influences. Okay, And so we can understand that logic, but that isn't what Jesus is saying. And that is a it's faulty logic, right? There's a way that you can be holy amidst a fallen. There's a way that you can be light amidst a dark world. That's what Jesus is encouraging us. So withdrawal is not an option. He said, no, you don't, you don't take your light and put it under a bowl. That's, that's not point. So some people have gone to the other, other extreme, and we call this assimilation. So they just become so much like the culture that it, there is no distinction after all. It's like you're just like everyone else. You're chasing what everyone else is chasing. Your marriage looks like everyone else's marriage. Your your career path looks like everyone else's career path. Your choices look like everyone else's choices in the culture. And in in an effort, I believe a pure effort, maybe initially to to be relevant to the culture, we can get kind of subsumed by that culture. And so that's no good either. Assimilation is no good, just like withdrawal is no good. Some people believe that the Christian uh, way to respond to culture is to dominate, to transform, to totally transform and take over the culture. We need Christians to be prime ministers and presidents. We need Christians to be in government. We need Christians to run businesses, to run universities, schools, educations. We need Christians to be in the arts, the media, and we need them to dominate. We need them to put the Christian values in wherever they are. And so again, we can see the motive of that. Obviously, we believe that the best way for society to work is with Christian principles. But total domination is very dangerous, and it's never been a good thing when the church has tried to have power like that. You can look at church history briefly to tell you that that's not what Jesus wants either, not total domination. So what is a posture then? If those things don't work, we don't have a posture of withdrawal, assimilation, or domination. What we do want to have, and what Jesus models for us, is a posture of engagement with culture and with the people that are in that culture. And Jesus actively engaged the people and culture of his day in very relevant day-to-day ways. We see this as we read the Gospels. Jesus was incredibly in touch with the people and the culture that he was in. And so you might ask, well, what do we mean by culture? And again, it's one of those words we kind of throw out there. And it can be very unhelpful to talk about the culture because there's no such thing as a culture. There's so many different parts of culture, but perhaps a little definition might be helpful. Culture is the belief, the behaviors, the values, the language, the intellectual achievement, artistic expression, and entire way of life. Listen to that entire way of life of a particular group of people. Another way that culture has been described is that culture really is religion externalized. Culture of a place or a people 
is really what that place or people holds most valuable, most important, uh, almost most sacred, even if they're irreligious, most sacred. And it's seen through music, art, fashion, economics, business, governance, education, technology, sports, tech, uh, media, and in all aspects of society begin to tell us what a culture really holds true and valuable and um, sacred in many ways. And so, you know, you think in, the, in, a, in a city like Toronto, there are so many different cultures. You can go from one place to another place and see a totally different culture there. And so that's why it can be unhelpful to speak of the culture. But there are certain things that the culture picks up on. There are certain uh, cultures that cities have or even nations have. And so when we're talking about being um, engaging with our culture, it means being wise to what's happening in our culture. It's being wise to what our culture holds dear. Another person once put it that if you really want to know what a culture values most, find out what their greatest hope is and what their greatest fear is. And that begins to tell your story. Culture is extern religion externalized, what their greatest hope and what their greatest fear is. And so I think what we're trying to drive at, or at least what Jesus is trying to drive at, and hopefully it's come through not just this message throughout this entire series, is that our faith, yes, it's private. Yes, it's personal, right? You can't have the faith of somebody else. Yours has got to be personal. And in some ways, it's a very private thing. But it's not just relegated to being private or personal. Our faith is very public. Our faith is very public. And that can be a challenging to a lot of people. And certainly to secularism, because what secularism wants to do is he wants to say, hey, religion, we've got a little box for you over here, and it's called privatization. So whatever you need, whatever God you need to get through life, that's for you. But all this other part of society and the public, we don't want religion in there. And so oftentimes as Christians, we begin to think, we begin to live like that. We begin to live our faith is very privatized, is what we do. But the majority of our lives when we're interacting in the public is we don't really bear it upon what we do, what we say, unless somebody really directly asks us. And so we can see that that's not what Jesus modeled. You know, our, our faith is not just something we add on to our lives. The faith that Jesus is calling us into is to totally have a new way of living, a new way of life in this world. Uh, Miroslav Volf puts it like this, a faith that makes a difference authentically is a faith that guides what we do in the world and that shapes how we understand the world and our place in it. And so Jesus really models this again well for us. And he models how to culturally engage. And cultural engagement connects with the culture. It doesn't withdraw. It also confronts the culture. It doesn't assimilate. And it seeks to convert the culture not dominate or coerce. Again, maybe that convert word sounds a bit strong for you, but convert just means to, to, to sway a person's opinion. And you're trying to, you know, make no mistake, you know, everyone's trying to convert everyone these days. You get onto your, you know, social media platform of choice. People are trying to convert you to buy this, to do that. And so we use that language anyways. And, and that's what we seek to do. We believe that the way of Jesus is the best way to live life. And so we, that's what Jesus do is trying to, to seek to convert the culture, but not dominate the culture. You know, Jesus' disciples also had a misunderstanding. They, they wanted Jesus to dominate the culture. They wanted him to take political power. They saw that he was a man with power, tremendous power. And they wanted to use that to dominate. 
And Jesus said, no, no, you're missing it. The, my kingdom is a different kingdom. And so we want, to en- we want to engage culture in the way that he does, connect with culture, not withdraw from it, confront culture, not assimilate to it, and where we can convert culture, not dominate or coerce it. Um, a few, I think it was in 2020, uh, the late Tim Keller uh, brought out a, a very short booklet. It was about 60 pages. It was kind of like a manifesto. In fact, you can, you can get it online. You can Google it. It's called How to, Say, How to Reach the West Again. It's a PDF. It's freely available. And for me, I think it's kind of puts the brilliance of Tim Keller within 60 pages. And it was his prophetic look at the culture that he was in, uh, which was New York City, which really is largely uh, uh, indicative of a lot of the culture of the West, the way the West is going. And, uh, and he was trying to re-enchant Christians and churches to look at the West. Okay, Canada would be considered the West, the U.S., the West. Look at it through different eyes. It's no longer a Christian, Christianized nation. It no longer has the assumptions that maybe 30, 40 years ago you could have. It's a fantastic read. I really encourage you to do that. But here's what he says in terms of the landscape that we find ourselves in right now. He says, the overall decline of Christian influence in the West is inarguable. Each generation is becoming less religious and less Christian. More than two-thirds of the churches in the United States have plateaued or in decline. Probably be similar here in Canada. While religion was broadly seen as a social good, or at least benign, increasing numbers of people now see the church as bad for people and a major obstacle to social progress. Traditional Christian beliefs about sexuality and gender are being viewed as dangerous and restrictive of people's basic civil rights. And so he goes on to talk about significant factors to that. Secularism, we touched on that, where increasingly it's a world that doesn't have a view of the transcendent. Uh, it's a world that's post-Christian, which is different to the world of the early church, which was pre-Christian. What happens when a Christian has come to a place, people have believed it and then rejected it, is then how do you re-engage that? That's the kind of culture we're in now. Certainly here in Canada, he talks about just the the influence of digital culture and how much digital culture is reshaping people um, in unhelpful ways. You think of the access that people have to ideas, a lot of bad ideas. You think of the access that people have to 24-7 media that's shaping them with ideas and telling them not just what to think, but telling them how to think. And so we shouldn't underestimate that if we're trying to re-engage the culture. And then he talks about just the increasing polarization the extremes that are happening and the clashes that those extremes bring. And we're living it right now. And people, I mean, if you want to see polarization, just go into your workplace on your campus and say, ask someone, so what do you think about what Palestine and Israel should do? I mean, then talk about a strong opinions coming out and people see things in black and white and very little is nuanced. And so all those contribute to being really hard to re-enchant a culture with Christian values. But what are the points of that book that is that the, that decline that he talks about should provoke us as followers of Jesus to really rethink then how are we going to engage the world today? You know, what worked 30, 40 years ago, we've got to assume can't work today. We praise God for the techniques, the strategies of the church that's gone by, but we can't just simply say, well, gosh, I'm just going to be faithful to do that. No, the, the world that we've, ch- the world that we're in has changed and we need to change with it in some ways. And so in his book, he suggests many ways you can go and read them. But one of the ways I want to pick up, because I think it ties in very much with what we're talking about in this series, um, 
is, uh, and he talks about how, um, in some ways, the early church becomes a great model for us again because they were in a culture that was incredibly hostile to the values of Jesus. They saw it as a threat. They didn't see it as some kind of there was an increasing threat that they saw that this groundswell of this cult called Christians who were following the way. Uh, they saw that as destabilizing society. They thought, saw it as a threat to the dominance of the Roman Empire. So in some ways, he says, we actually can learn a lot for how they engage their culture, how they were salt and light in their culture. Uh, Michael Green, who was, wrote a book called The Evangelism in the Early Church, estimates that 80% or more of evangelism in the early church was not done by ministers or evangelists, but by ordinary Christians explaining themselves to their network of relatives and close associates. Keller goes on to quote uh, in that book, people paid attention to the gospel because someone they knew well, worked with, and perhaps loved spoke to them about it. The greatest challenge today is to stimulate a significant percentage of Christians to intentionally adopt missional living in their daily lives and relationships. So, if our paradigm is to be distinct from and for the world, if our posture is to engage, not withdraw, not assimilate, not dominate, then what are some practices? What is this missional living that Tim Keller and others are talking about? So let's look at the practices of missional living. And there are many, but just to explain what missional living, if that's a relatively new phrase to you, missional living means simply to embrace the posture and practices of a missionary by ordinary Christians in their everyday life. So here's a exercise for you. If you think about today, someone said to you, hey, um, we're going to send you as a missionary to some faraway country and place that you've never been. Just think how would, what would be helpful for you to prepare well for that? Before you even touched the ground in that place, met those people, what would be some helpful things, some helpful practices for you to do as a mission? What Kellen and others are saying is, so take those and adopt it to your everyday life, right? That you may not ever be in that faraway place, but you're here today. And so what does it mean for us to adopt a missional way of living and thinking in our lives and relationships? And there are many, and I don't have time to go through many. I think we've touched on some of them. Sheila brought some very practical ways of what loving neighbor looks like last week. That was a great message. Go back and listen to that. Two things, two ways that I think today that are overlooked and I think could be really helpful to help you and I as ordinary Christians in our day-to-day living to begin to adopt this posture, these practices of missional living. One is towards others. And Colossians 4 is going to be a great text for us. Paul the Apostle says to those early Christians in Colossae, says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Be wise in the way you act toward others. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I mean, this deserves a sermon in and of itself, but just to touch on quickly there, and it sounds a lot like the Pepsi card that we've been talking about, pray. Pray, not just pray, but pray diligently. And I think he says pray diligently or persevering prayer in some other translations is because sometimes we can get discouraged when we don't see things changed, especially if we're amongst the people who are indifferent or uncomfortable or even hostile towards our faith. Pray, pray diligently. He says then also live Winsomely, wisely is the word used, but winsomely is a great word there. In other words, winsomely is a way that would kind of win people over. At least they'd be intrigued by the way that you live your life. And so the question for an eye is, again, is my faith integrated with my life or is it kind of compartmentalized in that private little 
religious box there. And so when we integrate our faith into our lives, that begins to be living wisely before others. Another way that we live winsomely and wisely before others is we actually consider what people think about us. Now, I know a very popular kind of phrase to live by today is don't care what people think about you. And so in context, uh, that can be helpful. But in context here, he's actually telling us, consider how people might perceive you at work. Uh, at your college or university campus, in your neighborhood. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should think about how they might perceive you. And so we should be thinking about how others may perceive us. And hopefully, as we consider that, we can begin to say, oh, yeah, I think I'm living in a way that's not perfect, for sure, but is winsomely, is at least um, engaging them in a way that would open up opportunities. And then he says, when you have those opportunities, make the most of them. And so when you have those opportunities, you need to speak. It's not just living. It's not just speaking. It's both and. It's living a certain way and then speaking. And when we have those opportunities to speak, he says, speak graciously. You know, he says, he doesn't just say sometimes speak graciously, depending on who you're talking to. He says, let your conversations be always full of grace. That's a very an absolute word. We don't like absolutes in our day. But he says, always, regardless of who you're speaking to, regardless of how hostile they may be, regardless of how different they may be, regardless of how riled up you might be, always be full of grace. In other words, there are better and worse times to say things. There are better and worse way to say things. And so different people need to be spoken to differently. And how do you know that? Well, you get to know them. Right, Pepsi, you're praying for them, you get to build a relationship with them through eating, you're looking for ways to bless them. And so speak graciously, uh, seasoned with salt. Seasoned, right? You want to season it just enough, right? Not too salty that it's off-putting or not too bland that's like it's uninteresting. Tactfully, thoughtfully, that we're able to articulate our hope and the good news. And so those are ways that we can begin to live missionally towards the people right now, towards others. The second way, and again, this could take on a series, and in some ways, um, in years gone by, we've attempted to do that. But I think for the 99% of Christians, um, what does missional living look like at your work or towards work? Consider this, the average person is going to spend 90,000 hours at work over their lifetime. That's not a small part of your life. Have you thought about how your faith integrates with what your work is, or if you're a student, what you're studying, hopefully towards work and a career? And I'm not talking about just looking for opportunities to witness or your you know, Christian witness or thinking Christianly about our work is putting a Bible verse on our desk or that kind of thing, not knocking those attempts, but I'm, think, I'm talking about how do you see your work through the lens of God's mission? How do you see your work as intrinsically important to God at least and therefore hopefully to us? You know, and sadly for many Christians and many churches, they never really talk about that except for evangelistic opportunities at work, but never talk about how business, education, arts, media, science, whatever industry you find yourself could be helpful towards what God is doing in the world. 
Uh, Dorothy Sayers, she was a popular 20th century novelist and playwright and also was a kind of a Christian apologist in a lot of her writings. Um, she puts it quite soberly, uh, quite bluntly. She says this, In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments, and it is astonished to find that, as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends, and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious, or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his or her life? And so I think what she's getting at is what Jesus is getting at is this faith needs to be integrated into our life, not just one little part called a devotional life or a spiritual part of our life, but integrated into all parts of our life where we live, where we work, study, where we play, the people we interact with, the workplace, the career that we're pursuing. And so integrating faith with our work means doing it well and approaching it from a Christian perspective. You know, again, if we're going to be distinct, if you're just going to work, show up on Monday morning, complain about work like everyone else does, that's not distinction. If you're going to have a distinct view of your work, you're going to need to get a vision for what that work is in the kingdom of God. Um, very quickly, and we're running out of time here, but very quickly, I want to put up a helpful little Venn diagram. So if we look at a biblical vision of work, Bible uses three words really for this word called avadar, the Hebrew word avadar. And it's the intersection of, work. firstly, work can be worship, that we do it to the glory of God. Um, secondly, that work can be of service, um, particularly for the common good or the good of people around us and in the world. And then this last part, that work is vocational. Another word for that would be calling, where it's a sense of, a big sense of uh, meaning and fulfillment for the person engaged in that. And so the sweet spot is when we're doing work that we know glorifies God, that we know is adding benefits to society, but that we also get tremendous meaning and fulfillment from what we're doing. That's the sweet spot of work. And that's where work becomes like missional living. That's where work can become distinct from people pursuing just a career or people just getting a job to make money. And look, I'm not saying that always happens. I'm saying that oftentimes we get two of the three there. Sometimes we don't get all three, but we can work towards all three. But the sweet spot I believe that God wants to take all of us to is get into that place where we see our job, whatever it may be right now, as a thing that can worship God, that can be a form of worship, that can be a form of service, and that can be a form of deep calling and fulfillment for us as we integrate our gifting, our skill, and purpose, that we get to say one day, hopefully, God made me for this. You know, God made me for the world of education. God made me for research and development. God made me for software development. God made me for um, fighting justice in courts of law. God made me for being an administrator, whatever it may be. When we approach our work like this, it's another way that we live wisely before outsiders, that we practice missional living. And when we do our work well, no matter how insignificant we might think it is, uh, it honors God because it matters to God. And so those are two practical ways, and we could talk more about that, and maybe at a later time we will need to delve more into that. 
But I believe those are two ways that we could, every one of us today could begin to practice missional living as we adopt a paradigm of being distinct from and for the world. As we engage the world, we don't withdraw, assimilate, or dominate. And then we begin to move towards others and towards our work with a missional living or missionary approach and stance. So as we close here, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But the reality is we need Jesus to be the salt and the light to us first. I need him to be salt and light in my life first. Then as his disciple, I can live distinct, engaged, and missionally for the lives of the people and the world that God so loves us. God so loves. And so my encouragement to you and I today is allow God to be through Jesus that salt and light in your life and to perhaps pinpoint a practical thing that you can take towards being missionally living for him this week. Maybe it's a conversation that you're going to have with someone. Maybe it's just being challenged to think about your current job, your current career. Is it a calling? Could it be a calling? And if you're not there, then maybe it's a prayer, a cry of a prayer for you to have that increasing your life. Let me pray as we close this message and close out the series. Father, you've called us to be salt and light. You've challenged us to be distinct from and for the world. You've challenged us to engage the world and the culture around us. Lord, a culture that's changing so quickly, a culture that is rapidly changing around us, that sometimes it spins our heads and sometimes we don't know up from down and sometimes it's so powerful to disciple us versus the kingdom of Jesus. But I pray, God, that throughout the series and as we continue in community, you'd help us to be a people that are shaped around your reality, shaped around your kingdom. And as we do that, God, that we could live our everyday lives missionally for you, God, engaging people full of gracious conversation, living lives wisely before people, knowing that perhaps they're looking at our lives, they're looking at the way that our faith is integrated in what we do. And so we do all this, God, ultimately for your glory and our joy, but also to see this world be affected for good um, as Jesus you call us to be. Thank you, God, as we go now into the rest of our service and as we begin the season of Advent next week, God, that we hold all these things in our hearts and allow you to work them out in the right time. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.